came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. How's it going, everyone? How are you doing? Good. Still here. Yeah, good. Just a busy month. We've, I mean, we're all working on this stuff with the Disaster Capitalism Group, so that's um, shaping up nicely. Look forward to sharing some of the the, the um, material we're producing. Yeah, that's such a great international team that you've assembled. Of yeah, so many folks thinking through kind of the same question in different ways. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad we're, we're finally getting towards some um, something to show for all our conversations and kind of debates and discussions. Possibly three different written pieces, right? Which is cool. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jason is doing his favorite trick of talking about recent pieces that haven't been <laughs> written yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> I suppose you you just want another mem from me, right? Like I'll, I'll assemble one. Don't worry, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's something I think for for the future that we've talked about is is like a meme competition, <laughs> disaster meme competition, disaster meme competition. Yeah, yeah. please um, send us your entries. But no, we're actually quite serious about it. Um, <laughs> Wait, don't we also have the disaster? <laughs> is this the disaster joke competition where like? Just a link to someone's paper can also be considered an entry, or is that too shady stuff? <laughs> no, I quite like that actually. You know, <laughs> I, I really like that. That that is the kind of the best competition. You know, talk, talking about publications and kind of publisher perish. You know, I've been um, there's been so much discussion about it. January New Year, you know, we, we talk about the plans for for new publications. And somehow, every time we talk about perish, um, I think about extinction. Uh, I don't know. That's how my, my brain works, right? Um, and I think generally in disasters, we talk a lot about extinction, jokingly sometimes, right? But also more and more seriously, I think the context of climate change, but also in the context of sort of human selfishness and stupidity. Um, so I think today's episode is going to provide some more insight into that. Absolutely. Um, I'm really happy that uh, I got a chance to sit down with our Sean Abrams to talk about extinction, um, mass extinction, um, food security, how all of these things are, you know, maybe thought of as part of a, a natural or biological world, but are also constructs in and of themselves. And yeah. And also speaking of publish or perish, like Sean and I have something we've co-written that is not out. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll be sometime in 2021, but I had a lot of fun in this conversation. So I hope it's really fun to listen to.
So throughout the season, we've been trying to connect with voices outside of disaster studies and emergency management, carrying out meaningful and necessary work. Um, folks who have unique insights to share. And so my guest today to help us through this is R. Sean Abrams. Sean is a doctoral candidate at the University of Missouri Division of Biological Sciences in the Piers lab? Is it Piers? Piers? Correct it's me. Piers. It's Oof. Piers. All right. I'm right there. Um, and, and Sean's work focuses on trying to figure out some of the unseen diversity plants are hiding. They also study metabolic trait evolution and phylogenomics, um, which maybe we'll hear a little bit about today. Um, so I want to open the floor. Thank you very much, Sean. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Super excited. Yeah. And I, um, you know, like this intro is very real. Um, I am really excited to have a biologist and a botanist in the space um, and having a conversation about disaster. Um, and so maybe just to sort of start us off, your Twitter bio states that you're a genderqueer black scientist practicing ascent with modification, studying phylogenomics, evolution, and superpowers with your pronouns they them. And can you um, can you just tell us like how all this fits together? how you are approaching this conversation um, from, from where you're approaching this conversation about disaster? Uh, yeah. So my, I guess that first sentence is me stating um, my genderqueer identity and being a black scientist, because that is, I think that is critical to how I view, um, how I view my field and how I view the research that I do. Um, it's also, I also, you know, acknowledge the, the role evolutionary biology has played in anti-blackness and so black people's relationship with that. So it's really important for me to, to put that identity at the upfront. The ascent with modification part is a, uh, um, a, a joke, I guess. <laughs> I guess it's a, um, uh, cause we, when we think about evolution, it's it, a way of defining it is descent with modification because you're descending through generations. For me, I feel like I'm growing up. So I'm growing up and slowly modifying different things, getting better every day um, in terms of the research that I do. So what phylogenomics means is it's uh, me using I'm so I'm a bit of like a biological historian, um, but instead of using like fossils or, or something like that in order to uh, learn about the past, I use genomes. I think uh, like 23andMe kind of, but um, instead of thousands of years, I look back millions of years, potentially, to get at how certain traits have evolved in plants. Um, and when I say superpowers, I'm actually thinking of these key innovations. Uh, these are things that have led to um, species being able to take advantage of um, a lot of different niche space or to adapt and to speciate into huge, huge lineages that we recognize as major families today. So for something that might be very intimate to everyone listening is the, the idea of like the vertebrate spine, right? Um, we don't really think of bones and things like that as being um, something weird or odd, but at one point in, in eukaryotes, they did not exist. And so they had to be evolved. And when they did evolve, everything that got them uh, was able to do very well, and which is why we have so many organisms today that have uh, bones. 
Oof. I um <laughs> <laughs> I love this already and um I I guess like already this conversation is pushing me to and all of our conversations push me to expand my view of the world and what's going on and expand my view of time um and place and you I mean you even mentioned sort of like dealing with the scale of millions millions of years and so maybe i just to kind of dive right into things so you know many of us who do very applied kind of direct disaster work are sort of literally putting out fires left and right and have to sort of work hard to zoom out and see the larger context of our work sometimes the larger context of natural systems and of social systems and political systems and I know we speak a ton on this show about you know, disasters, you know, not being natural, um, about disaster being a product of a, a social and political context and dynamic. And so, I don't know, something that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about, honestly, is sort of making a lot of considerations of the, the non-human natural world and thinking about them in this context. And so I want to know if you can speak to what we should be thinking about when we think about sort of climate and and disaster um in the natural world maybe mass extinctions things like this sure so yeah i think um extinction is definitely maybe we can start there so extinction is a pretty it's a natural process um where a specific lineage of life um ceases to be uh, and it's kind of balanced out in the long term with the um, rate of speciation. So as we lose species, we get new species. As you know, you lose. Um, uh, I think island biogeography is actually a really good uh, explanation of this. So when we think about islands like uh, New Zealand, where they did not have uh, mammals for a long time, and so you had all of these. Um, birds filling roles that normally we think of like, oh, a rabbit would do this. Well, they had a bird to do that instead. Um, and so you have, so when you have these species speciating, they can fill these different niches that are just available in the environment and perform specific ecological, uh, valuable ecological roles, right, for a healthy ecosystem. Um, and this dance of extinction versus speciation has been going on for a long time. On one hand, um, species want to be able to take advantage, the most advantage of a specific niche uh, or ecological role. On the other hand, they want to be a bit general. They want to have a kind of, they want to have a lot of genetic diversity and be able to adapt. Um, so like if you're a bird, if you want to be the best seed eater, uh, you might specify, you might become super specialized in doing that. But then if that those specific seeds that you become specialized to eat disappear, you disappear as well, right? You're not very mm. robust to change. And so a lot of um, evolution is this ability to both respond to change, um, but also take advantage of the resources that are available to you. So when we think about a mass extinction, this is where this normal balance back and forth just swings hard in one direction. Uh, or, right. So we're thinking of like, 
um, you know, super volcano events or uh, the uh, meteor impacts, um, lowering of sea level or, or, you know, climate change, right? It's a really big factor in that. And the way scientists measure extinction is, uh, or mass extinction events, um, right? Most of it has been in the past. So they're about, depending on how you measure about five mass extinction events in the past, and mostly they care about multicellular life. So we're not even going to talk about bacteria and single-celled organisms because those are really, really hard to measure in terms of mass extinction. So, for example, the last major extinction um, event, uh, it's the KT or KPG event, which you might rem- uh, know colloquially as the death of the dinosaurs, right? The meteor that killed the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was also, uh, it took out about 75% of um, what we consider to be um, species at that time, recognizing that species, the term species, much like disaster, is a human construct. Um, and so it can be, so what we would consider species, we lost about 75% of that biodiversity um, at that time. Uh, yeah, and so today we're dealing with a, a different mass extinction event here in the Anthropocene, right? Um, where, which would be the sixth mass extinction event, but this is also the first one that we get to watch in slow motion, right? Previously, it's been, we, we measure them in, again, millions of years, right? Where <laughs> that's not the scale that we're looking at this one right now, but we have to call it for what it is. And this, this rate of, this rate of extinction is higher than the rate of speciation. And so we see this happening. And, and, and it's also the first time that humans have been involved and we know, or I should say maybe we don't know how our presence in a mass extinction will impact this mass extinction event since it is uh, largely human driven. So how do you like form a conversation or engage people? Like, let's say, um, let's say someone took a, a snippet from this conversation, like out of context, mm-hmm. um, you know, the part where you, uh, point out that extinction is a natural process. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, and that sentiment is brought to a conversation about, uh, not only climate change, but just human impacts on the environment in general. Um, like well this is this is a process that life has adapted to and so um (laughs) perhaps you know we should reorganize our entire society around preventing this process that has happened in the past and you know will continue to happen like where does Mm -hmm. how do you how do you engage that well i so so that exact conversation has happened, right? <laughs> to me, uh, with family specifically, where we're, where we're having conversations around this. And I think I'm probably not unique, um, amongst biologists who feel a real sorrow, um, when thinking about like a, a big thing that we often think about is the idea that there are species we haven't even identified yet that will go extinct before we figure that out. So I think there's also a misconception that we, oh, we know all the things that are alive now and we, we kind of have 
you know, uh, a handle on what life is. We don't really. Um, there are new species being identified every day. And so a lot of the things that we, um, we don't know what we're losing is a big part of it, right? And uh, although we like to think of ourselves as separate from nature and separate from the environment, um, we are a part of a balanced ecosystem. For example, I'm from South Florida, and a big part of a South Florida ecosystem is the Everglades. And the health of the Everglades is largely tied to this grass called sawgrass, right? It's the the part of the river of grass that is grass. It's actually a sedge, but I digress. Um, and um, it is what holds that ecosystem together. Now, if you're saying, okay, it doesn't matter. This grass could go extinct. You know, you know if it just went extinct tomorrow, um, would we be fine? No, it, we wouldn't be fine because there are a lot of ecological roles that the Everglades provides for people in South Florida, particularly in fresh water, right? So a lot of getting the fresh water that we uh, that they get in South Florida is from uh, groundwater. And a lot of that groundwater has to be filtered through the Everglades. So if you've destroyed the Everglades and you've destroyed by the extinction of certain species, you've triggered all these small interactions that then lead to bad consequences for humans. And we see this a lot, even where, uh, and on the fault of biologists too, where they're like, oh, you know, we're going to bring in this species in order to change something, or we're going to, you know, try and manipulate it a little so it's a bit more comfortable for human habitation. Um, and then you completely damage the uh, delicate ecosystem and it leads to, to negative consequences. So you could be okay with extinction happening and it is a natural process, but we also aren't guaranteed to be around, right? <laughs> like if you are, if you're comfortable with other things going extinct, are you comfortable with you going extinct too? Uh, yeah. So I think if, for people who are, who are really comfortable with that, I think there's a lot that we can gain from the biodiversity around us. And um, if we lose it before we even study it, um, we, we could potentially be writing our own, um, our own name down in the extinction book. Wow. I really appreciate that example um, as a Floridian as well. I'm trying to think through this idea, and this might be a naive question. It's like, okay, I, you know, on, in general terms or in like non-technical terms, I understand some importances of biodiversity um, and of you know, actually caring about impact on the environment. And like you touched on sort of not seeing humans as separate or distinct from the, from the environment or from, you know, animal life or from natural life. Um, so I think I've really only sort of thought about it in like consumptive ways, right? Like, oh, like this, this form of biodiversity needs to exist for me to be able to, I don't know, eat something, drink something, breathe, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. these sorts of things. Like, are, are there ways that we can also think about healthy human life also providing for the health of, of, um, of other living things on this planet? Or is that just like not the dynamic that we have presently? So like, we don't need it to survive, but it's just for its existence period. Is that what you're kind of getting at? Uh, I, I, that's maybe part of it or related. I'm like, so this is very fanciful. Like if, if an alien, like if an intelligent alien life that also for some, whatever completely nonsensical reason conducted scientific 
investigation, the way humans conduct scientific investigations, came and like observed the Earth. And it's like, it's very easy to be like, okay, this, uh, you know, this type of organism um, in the ocean benefits the ocean ecosystem this way, which kind of like uh, benefit uh, creatures on land this way. And this benefits humans in this particular way. And like this, these are all connected. Is there anything like, do are humans necessary for any other forms of life? Or are we just like out here consuming? <laughs> so are we, how are we a part of the balance basically? Right. So mm-hmm. there's definitely life that specifically relies on us when there's a lot of research that goes into um, people on their microbiome. Right. And so that's a huge, you, that's a huge like ecosystem you have just living in your gut and your gut, you know, calling your gut flora. Right. And that's life. Um, but maybe in a bit more um, broader sense, humans have very intimate relationships with a lot of lineages of life. You know, I mentioned my cat earlier. <laughs> She's a, that's a lineage of life that humans are responsible for. And, um, and the, and the crops we eat. Uh, a lot of those are yeah, and, and in some ways that is very consumptive, but there are plenty of books that write about how plants are actually, uh, they've entered into a, um, a symbiosis with us where we help them reproduce and they give us some fruit form, right? And so in a way, like they're from a human perspective, like, oh, we're just taking advantage of this X, Y, and Z thing. Well, we're actually, from the plant's perspective, they could also be taking advantage of us. Corn, the way we've domesticated corn now, I've talked about specializing yourself into um, dead ends earlier. Um, but like corn, if humans disappear tomorrow, corn would go extinct. Maize would go extinct as it exists um, because it just can't naturally reproduce. It doesn't have another um thing to do that and you actually see this in a few different places in nature too i was just uh uh doing some uh nature walking um to get my fresh air in you know from pandemic quarantine and i happened upon this osage orange uh which is this big gnarly almost looks like a breadfruit kind of seed and or or fruit and nothing eats it nothing eats it it just sits on the ground and um and it does nothing because the thing that used to eat it uh hypothesized to be ground sloths that are now extinct they're no longer there so the fruits just sit on the ground and rot and (laughs) and so they're definitely like even if i think even if it's consumptive right i don't think that is necessarily uh us being separate or us like just taking from in our consumption we give back um and that is how i think nature works in a lot of different uh contexts that was really poetic and i I appreciate that. Uh, so maybe shifting gears, but sort of keeping on that thread of consumption of food. Um, how uh, does the how do concepts like biodiversity, extinction, mass extinction um, relate to crops um, and relate to sort of this larger kind of conversation about food security or food politics? 
Well, I, I would say every biologist in my field and in an in adjoining field starts their grants, you know, saying something along the lines of, you know, you know, in the future, we're going to have to, you know, feed a much bigger human population with um, less land to do so in. So how do we improve X, Y, and Z thing in order to to get there, right? And to, to feed a growing human population. I think the truth of that is is a bit more in um, that people are also going to have to change how we eat, you know, in the future. But in terms of specifically, you know, relating biodiversity to food security, a lot of major issues that face crop species, disease, drought, um, these are issues of a lack of diversity, right? We specialize crops to do one specific thing. We want them to produce as much seed as possible. Um, and so, you know, in the, in the way, especially in the way people have in the past or how early, you know, humans domesticated things, it wasn't a big, well-designed, you know, plot where you're trying to you sequence the genome and you want to make sure you have a highest diversity. No, you, you go out, you see something that looks good, you know, you pick it, you grab its seeds, you keep growing that and you just do it and do that and do that and do that and do that until you have this inbred or relatively inbred crop species um, that gives you exactly what you want. There's really good um, work that's been done in, in corn to bring up corn again, that where uh, the, um, where they think the people who domesticated corn were actually the children of um, indigenous Americans who just picked from this plant called teosinte, which is the wild ancestor of corn, they they were they were less so going for oh I want to pick I want to they weren't thinking oh I want to you know design the best crop to feed millions in the future they were like no this is easy you know this is mm-hmm. you know this is big this is fat this is this doesn't shatter um, on the ground and all the seeds spread everywhere it sticks on a cob right and so in in doing that. We have also selected for things that are pretty vulnerable to um, to diseases and to drought and aren't specialized to do all these other different things that be to adapt, right? And and so we have to uh, introduce ways of adapting, particularly in my work. So I'm funded um, by the National Geographic uh, Foundation um, to go to areas of the Mediterranean, so Northern Africa and um, Grecian islands and, and islands in the Mediterranean to find some of the um, the relatives, the wild relatives of um, major brassica crops. So brassica oleracea is um, a major, uh, is one species, we call it the dog of the plant world. <laughs> um, because it, <laughs> because it's uh, you know broccoli, it's cauliflower, it's kale, it's collard greens, it's kohlrabi. Um, it does you know it has a bunch of different types um, like breeds you can think of it as right. Um, but it's one species. Um, but even uh, but if you want to get um, a kale that is more um, drought resistant or a kale that is um, able to uh, deal with a specific disease. Often you have to go looking for the wild relatives that are dealing with drought and disease um, in wild habitats in order to um, crossbreed or get the genes, or even if you take it all the way to the extent of CRISPRing in something, right? Using genetic tools to add genes in there so that 
now this food crop that, you know, and these are crops that are eaten on every continent, right? Including Antarctica. Um, I'm sure they have some broccoli down there, whoever's researching <laughs> down there. Um, these, uh, how, you know, how do you improve those crops to, uh, to fit what, even though they've adapted to a Mediterranean environment, how do you get them to exist across the world, right? And part of that is in relating back to those wild relatives and injecting some diversity. Um, I'd also say that there is uh, a newer movement in, in the in the wake of climate change. Um, there are a lot of so it's it's been you know arguably very colonial um, to say okay you in Africa here grow this kale or you in <laughs> or you know you in you know where whatever uh, country grow this crop because this is the major crop that you know has been millions of dollars to improve the production and quality of it and get people to do that but there are a lot of local um, and it's not just you know different countries I'm in the Midwest right now um, University of Missouri and there's this plant called a, a pawpaw um, which if you eat it it is it's like the it is the equivalent of like a mango and a banana um you know it's kind of mushy and sweet and people love great. it here right but it's not a very but it's not a crop right it's not you can't go to the grocery store and you know pick up a bag of pawpaws um you have to find a tree and and do that and um there's a lot of uh, interest and in how do we domesticate these things that people already like they're already eating often sometimes they're called orphan crops um which is a bit of a, a misnomer it's not that they're um nobody's eating them it's just not you know um the western world uh, doesn't consider it a major um food product and so there's not a whole lot of money behind the development and the improvement of those crops. And, but I do see now that there's more of a movement toward how can we take these things that are already adapted to um, disease, that are already adapted to um, their uh, local uh, or, or drought or their local climate or a shift in climate, right? How do you just take these plants that already exist and bring them up to being local food crops instead of trying to figure out how you grow a corn in you know central africa this makes me want to ask you about how, you, how do you feel about the future like the near and the distant futures where um i mean there's a lot there's a lot in the discourse right there's this idea that climate change uh will um not only you know reorganize ways of being and relating to each other but like physically have to like people will have to reorganize where they're living um and where mm. certain activities take place on like the surface of the earth and the idea or the conversation of like well if you know if the midwest and the great plains for example are no longer the breadbasket of america um mm -hmm. then we can we can grow our food elsewhere and or there are people, there's amazing, brilliant scientists like you um, who are thinking, you know, like thinking through some of these challenges that we face as uh, we, I guess, like deepen our understanding of the natural world. Um, and, you know, and some of those scientists will figure out ways that we can grow more food, 
in different areas. And so maybe, again, like maybe, maybe climate change looks differently than we imagine. Is it, is it as apocalyptic as people say it might be? Like, how do you feel about this sort of conversation as, as a scientist? I think a lot of it is bet hedging, you know, like it would be great if everything, <laughs> you know, works out. Like I, I spent some time working at, um, Wachenen University in, in the Netherlands and, uh, there, you know, it's one of, it's like the number one plant science, uh, university in the world. And they, they have amazing greenhouse, what they can grow in a greenhouse. You wouldn't even imagine. Um, and, and so I could see a future where people are, you know, most of your food is maybe produced local, um, from a greenhouse, right. And from some specific greenhouse variety, that's much more controlled than being outside or, um, or, or maybe, you know, and, and, maybe, or, and maybe that is better in a lot of reasons, you know, maybe that's producing less carbon emissions or not transporting, you know, things from the bread basket to every corner of the U S or, um, so, I, you know, I think there is a lot of room for innovation. Um, I, I think I worry most about the, um, and part of it has been listening to this podcast, honestly, um, it, you know, the people who are left behind in, um, in those efforts, right? If we make food, um, and what, what diversity is lost, right? So if you make food that has to be grown in, in a greenhouse, um, then, then you lose a lot of the plants that are, um, and the, the, the natural, their cultural history of, um, domestic, local domestication, right? There are a lot of land races, what it's referred to, uh, in terms of, um, like collard greens, right? Maybe collard greens doesn't get a variant in, uh, in a greenhouse growing, uh, uh, position, but is a, uh, a critical cultural food for a lot of Americans, particularly in the South and, and, and African Americans communities. So suddenly now no one has paid to make the greenhouse version of that. And maybe it doesn't grow really well in this new agricultural environment. And then people just say, Oh, well use kale instead or, Oh, you know, use- <laughs> Not kale instead. (laughs) (laughs) So I think there is, it's going to be a dance, right? And I don't know. I don't know, you know, who, how we'll go about it. I know that there's a lot of money to be made in figuring out the solution to doing that. And there are a lot of people who want to be on the the money making end of that. Um, And so I think as we just have to be careful and and mindful um, as we move forward in developing the space. I I am optimistic that we'll find a solution, uh, particularly with technologies like CRISPR. Like the very least people will, um, there will be food options for people. Will that change the existence of food deserts? No, probably not. Will that change the, you know, know, it's also not a perfect system as it is right now. So I, I do think it will be possible um, but how can we, how can we also in this food transition process change some of the other, you know, non-natural or non-climate um, change related issues that are just parts of our society?
first, I want you to know that just the, you know, the prospect of, of kale instead of greens, um, <laughs> had, you know, it, it, it turned, it took this conversation from very chill and very relaxing to like my, my heart rate kind of, um, spiking a little bit. So, okay. Um, Mass extinction didn't get you there. It was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, it truly didn't. Um, but I, um, what you said, one made me think about um, the, I'm really grateful for my friend um, over here in Massachusetts. Um, actually, she's based in New York right now. Um, Anjali Dominique Hall, who like uh, her tweets have like gotten me sort of invested in thinking about like food apartheid rather than food desert. Like just like denaturalizing mm-hmm. all of these all of these mm-hmm. terms and like, oh, yeah. it's like inherent anti-blackness and, and who has access to food and who has access to the food that they want and affordably. And, um, and in some of these like political kinds of conversations, like I'm, I'm grateful for some of your reflections and your answers. I, you know, some of these questions are a little bit like devil's advocate and like almost tongue in cheek because obviously I'm invested in preventing the impacts of climate, prevent, preventing the climate from changing more than it already has, um, and preventing some of the worst impacts, um, and reimagining ways of being so we don't have to deal with the, these disasters that we create as um, a capitalist society. And so, part of the way I think about the world is greatly influenced by um, the things that you shared with me about your work and your outlook, and. I'm like, oh, does everyone does everyone have a a scientist best friend who's like out here doing this work and like also effective at communicating and with like a very particular history rooted in like place and rooted in um you know a variety of disciplines. And and I wonder like where do you see your work or work um that your colleagues do sort of connecting with people working in planning and policy making um and what is like effective science communication look like for you like is effective science communication happening right now in this space mm-hmm. uh, how do we measure like what is like who's done a good job and like where and how mm-hmm. so i think at the, the base of a um a scientist's roles i mean we don't take an oath or anything but i feel like what is important is the research right doing quality research and then the communication of that research Um, and i think some scientists think the communication of that research is just to or or at least have thought is just to whatever journal you publish it in but i think it it takes on more than that and 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 distinctly at least for me involves how can i how can i bring that to a broader audience as well and a lot of um a lot of scientists are are having to face the idea of um that we can say you know climate change is happening um as you know we can scream it from the rooftops we can have a 90 percent um a 90 percent consensus amongst scientists regarding um the effects of climate change and, and its anthropogenic nature uh but 
still not do anything in terms of policy, right? And that not translate into um, any kind of change in society. Um, and then you get into this doom game of just like, oh, I guess that's another, you know, species down. That's another, you know, ecosystem destroyed. That's another, um, you know, kind of the uh, similar to the doom scroll of what, <laughs> of what mm-hmm. you know, many people are familiar with of this year. Um, so for me, science communication is part of doing uh, of the active step that I can still perform as a scientist, um, but incorporating. Uh, I don't only have to tell um, what I learned to my colleagues, but I have to share it with um, the people who are actually going to be making uh, a difference. I think conservation is um, a really uh, easy example for this. Like when we think of conservation biologists, these are people who are studying things that are um, at the edge of extinction or people who are trying to figure out the best ways that we can improve, um, improve our the way that we build cities, the ways that we build roads, how we can make things up our impact on the environment less drastic. Um, and, and, and a lot of that work is directly talking to um, the people who are making the policies, usually people in um, government, right? Or, or, or going into government jobs, you know, working with the USDA or working with um, the Forest Service or whatever local state service uh, exists in order to get changes. I think some of the most impactful work that I've seen um, in this is like in the installation of corridors. You know, one of the big impacts humans have on our environment is that we fragment our environment. Like this idea like, oh, here's this natural, like, oh, or you might see a sign that says, oh, this is a conservation area, right? Mm-hmm. Um but if you if but animals or and plants and you know all organisms aren't used to being limited to a conservation area, right? They don't know that oh, I need to only be in Yellowstone National Park and not anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And so, being able to connect fragmented habitats is critical for um, their ability to survive and to adapt, right, to climate change. You can't expect a um, uh, you know one species to be able to you know, shift, you know, as climate is shifting, shift with the climate, which is what historically happens in evolutionary history, right? That if a climate would change, species, which are even plants, right? They will move south. Their seeds will, you know, they'll get blown by the wind and they'll start, you know, growing more and more. But if we have a city up in between the migration route of whatever species, uh, they're not going to be able to do, to take advantage of their natural migration abilities. So I think making, we can build our environment in ways that takes into account um, a lot of the things that we learn about biology and, and target species that we see as most critical. Sadly, I think that that also ties into um, like I, as a, a plant biologist recognize that not all plants are orchids. Not all plants are <laughs> really charismatic. Um, you know, I, I push a food security, like as a person who, like my undergraduate degrees in botany, I like a lot of plants and I didn't want to work in anything properly. I wanted to study some weird vine only found in South America, you know, that no one ever knew about and blah, blah, blah. Like those are the, the plants that really interest me. 
Um, but it's not the, but it's not the things that are necessarily going to motivate, um, the average citizen or maybe not even citizen, which is average person, right? Now make it about citizenship. The average person living in America to make a specific change or the average policymaker to say, hey, you should consider this, you know, blah, blah, blah species. And they're like, no, we actually want a Walmart there, you know, because it's not, you know, charismatic enough. Um, maybe that was a roundabout answer to your question. But yes, <laughs> those are the, that's the space that I see um, scientists having to inhabit in order to connect with uh, policymakers and um, the importance of communicating their science to people who might not, uh, who aren't digging into the literature. Gosh. And honestly, that example with the Walmart um, is so relevant. Recently on Twitter, Wes Cheek, who's a friend of the show and a researcher based in Japan right now, shared with me that a, a site that I previously um, did field work in, in North Florida um, on the panhandle uh, is somewhere where I, I guess there was some kind of like little water feature that was like slightly inland from the ocean. And it was useful for like, I think hazard mitigation reasons and for sort of natural wildlife habitat reasons. And it was literally um, not just like sort of paved over a Walmart built on top of it, but like there was an, there's another Walmart one block away. Um, wow. And it's just like, wow. Like how did this conversation, like that literally just like happened because of a conversation or a set of conversations about like use of space and use of land and like what our needs are and then what's going on with the rest of the organisms inhabiting the earth. Um, and now it's lost to a Walmart. Um, mm -hmm. And so maybe zooming out a little bit uh, or just kind of taking a step back from all of these amazing things that you've shared with us today so far, what, like, what big issues, um, especially if they relate to climate change, if they relate to disaster or maybe something else that's, you know, relevant that I'm not thinking of right now. Like what sort of issues in this do you think the public is like missing? What's missing from this conversation? Is there a phenomenon? Is there a, uh, is there a change or a shift that we're not thinking about that's, that's important? Is there a dynamic? Is there work being done that we really should know about? The individual person can have an impact, right? It, it, policy is important and it's critical. Um, but any one person can make decisions that lessens the overall um, impact that we have on a loss of biodiversity. And yes, big things like climate change aren't going to be solved necessarily until we can, um, you know, have some strong regulatory conversations. But things like <laughs> like the number of small bird and small mammal species that have gone extinct because people um, keep their cats outside, right? Um, <laughs> like that is, that is a huge, like a huge number. And I don't want to blame the cats. I'm, you know, I'm coming after, you know, the individual people, uh, in terms of really, you know, there are these little decisions that can significantly impact, 
um, species. And, and you know, you know, places that take it very seriously are um, particularly like places where they've had crazy species lost, like islands. I mentioned island biogeography before. Hawaii, very strict about what and who and where and what you can actually bring onto those islands because one introduced species, domesticated or not, can completely destroy a fragile ecosystem. And the smaller space you're in, the more likely that to happen. Um, and the other part of that is that you can also really, as an individual, do a lot to, um, you know, you don't have to be a specialist to be involved in science. And there's a lot of community um, science in, in measuring um, the world around you. So I used to play a lot of Pokemon Go. Um, now I play a lot of, or I use this app called iNaturalist, where I go out and you take photos and um, you can record sounds and you can, you know, get all kinds of evidence of wildlife around you. I'm particular to um, to uh, plants and to insects, and it also helps you identify. So don't feel like you need to also be able to identify these things. It's crazy. I'm you know, uh, I'm glad I didn't specialize in just like identifying plants for people because I'd be out of a job really quick. Well, <laughs> what these algorithms can do now, but you can, you can, it can help you engage with the world around you. But then scientists can use all of your or all of the the collected community resources, the collected um, not uh, observations from regular citizens and. Uh, and use that for understanding uh, the effects of climate change, right? Um, the uh, you know some of the most critical studies that have that really highlighted early effects of climate change were scientists just returning to a location over a span of ten years or so each year, taking measurements of like what is there, and realizing that oh, this species that used to be here is no longer here. And you can only figure that out if you're paying attention, right? And and where in the past you would need to have a lot of knowledge around um, the natural world in order to make those observations. Now, you know, you have that power in the palm of your hand, right? And so you can learn a bit about nature as well as really contributing to our understanding of how climate change is impacting species, whether it is their phenology, you know, are the flowers or are the trees or are the, the things in your environment um, flowering earlier than usual are you seeing um species you didn't used to see because there's been an invasive um explosion of species or you know you can you, your individual daily observations of the environment around you can improve our understanding of our natural world I'm going to look into this iNaturalist app, and it makes me think of the work of um, Ariana Salazar-Miranda, um, who works for the Sensible City Lab, and I think just kind of put out a bunch of research um, on uh, the habitats of city parks and urban sort of parklands and how those have changed in cities around the world 
based on like uh, lockdowns, like COVID nineteen related lockdowns, um, mm-hmm. and what what animals come out and what the animals are doing um, with fewer humans around, and it's really interesting stuff and like very beautiful kind of imagery associated with it. Um, and so, on that note, I want to ask you, like, what who are you drawing from? What are you drawing from in your work? And this can be as academic or as non-academic as you'd like. Like what is what is inspiring you right now? Or what are you spending time thinking about these days? Uh, well, I think a lot of the work, um, a lot of the, th- th- there's been a lot of work ar- surrounding racial justice and decolonization. And I, you know, uh, you, I'm sure as a, as a fellow hashtag black academic, you have done... <laughs> A lot of work in your own departments regarding, um, <laughs> regarding, you know, how do we, how do we create, um, an academic environment for everyone to thrive in and not just, you know, the people who academic, white people who, you know, academia was designed for. Um, and, uh, and this has made me think more about how my own work, um, completely intersects with, um, marginalized identities, both in like trying to encourage people into um, scientific fields and, sh- and trying to do that in a way that also protects them. Right? I don't, don't want to bring anyone into my into into a department or into my field that um, will then experience a uh, level of harassment. Um, but also, how can you know? I've been really intrigued by some work. Um, so this is out of um, the lab that I worked in. When I was at Wageningen University in the Netherlands in the lab of Eric Schrans, um, and they some of their recent work is they're, they're tying plant systematics with um, ethnobotany, um, and they were they were looking at how the how the names of um, how we name certain plants in in the Americas and the the knowledge of that plants is influenced based. Um, from the indigenous people as well as the enslaved Africans who, um, so if you, if you're not super familiar with your plate tectonics, South America and Africa, um, used to be a part of the same, um, major continent, Guandana, right? And so, um, as the, they separated and created what we now know as the Atlantic Ocean, um, they, there were plant lineages that were uh, that were stuck on both sides. You know, they they operated or they they existed in populations, and then they separated and speciated continents away, right? But the, those enslaved people um, who who were taken to the New World were able to utilize their plant knowledge um, from their local African flora in understanding what plants would be edible, what plants would be useful in the new new world and used names used you know naming schemes um, from their native languages to identify and to consider these plants i feel that uh it maybe sort of in, uh, in closing i guess this is such this has been such a lovely kind of conversation hour um do you have any um any writing coming out or any kind of projects on the horizon that that you want to mention maybe they're not out yet but maybe they will be in the near future sure so you can always follow me i'm a contributor to the molecular ecologist blog um there i you know talk about everything from 
hard science topics to things regarding, you know, the intersection between people and science and, and how those integrate. Um, I also have a, um, a piece that I haven't been able to find a place for it to get published yet is the piece that, um, I've co-wrote with you, Darian. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully that will be out. And that is on the experience of being, um, black in academia during, uh, all time, but particularly this year and, and what that means. So I look out for that. This. Um, We'll be looking out for that. And I I hate this because you're um, not my only co-author who I've had a conversation with on this show. (laughs) This is going to seem really self-serving, but it's not. It's not. Um, And I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Sean. Um, And... You know, you, you shared that you you write for the molecular molecular ecologist. Um, where can we find more from you in terms of social media, if you care to share? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at young underscore eukaryote. Um, you know, we didn't think you'd have to spell that word again, but here it is. Uh, <laughs> those are the those are the primary locations. Sweet. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for this enriching conversation. And we look forward to seeing you around. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Darian and I, Arshon Abrams, on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. <laughs>